Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have uh, Ashmeet Sadana, who's the Chief Engineer of Engineering Capital, his experience includes managing venture capital funds, serving a multiple board of directors and helping build industry-leading products, VMware, and silicon graphics workforce. Before uh, the last decade as a venture capitalist, Ashmeet was an operating executive with hands-on operating experience as a CEO and entrepreneur. Ashmeet has received his MBA from Wharton, uh, Master's in Computer Science from Stanford University, and Bachelor's Commerce from USC. In his spare time, he can be found planning a second trip to Mount Everest. Welcome to the show, Ashmeet. Thank you, Rohit. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you, you do have a very interesting journey because uh, we discussed before the call that uh, you came from uh, a village and you moved to the uh, uh, US and you've been a very successful venture capitalist. Uh, you know, tell me about your uh, childhood days uh, in India and how did you go on to move from uh, India to US? You know, I'm entirely a product of education and the fortune recipient of uh, being able to study. And for someone whose father was a farmer who lived in a village, uh, literally plowing fields with camels uh, in a you know in a mud house, uh, something which is easy for Indians to visualize, but for most people over here would be alien to imagine how backward rural the area was. Thanks to education, I ended up here at Stanford and uh, have lived in Silicon Valley ever since. So I have literally seen the march of human progress over thousands of years in my short life. Interesting, and uh, you know uh, you you. Uh... You went to uh, did your computer science from Stanford. Uh, was it your dream to always go to Stanford and you know be in the best of colleges? What was the experience there in Stanford? Uh, you know, this was like uh, 30, 30 years back. If I'm not wrong. You know, truth be told, Stanford was not my first choice. Um, as a good engineer growing up in India, I always wanted to be an engineer. I always wanted to study computer science, but the dream school for me was MIT. Uh, that's what I imagined would be the best place in the world to go. But unfortunately, I did not get admission there. And so I had to take what ended up being my second choice, Stanford. But in hindsight, you know, it brought me to Silicon Valley. Stanford was an amazing experience. It really is a special school. Um, it's not accidental that Stanford has been so successful as a university in uh, having such a dramatic impact on the world. Obviously, Stanford itself was started by an entrepreneur, Leland Stanford, uh, from the Union Pacific Railroad, uh, and then has a long history of entrepreneurship, even to the very roots of Silicon Valley, go over there. So I consider myself very fortunate that I ended up here. And yes, Stanford had a huge impact on my life. Correct. And uh, you know, when you moved on to uh, Silicon Valley, how did you get into the world of startups and, and, and into the tech world? Yeah. So my first job uh, after Stanford, like I mentioned, was at Silicon Graphics, where I was working as an engineer. This is in the middle 90s. The internet was just happening. And uh, it was very clear that something interesting was going to happen over here. Netscape was started from people from my group. And uh, I guess one alternative would have been to go join someone else's startup. But uh, I decided to start my own company, SSI. And uh, like any good entrepreneur, you know, there's something deep, something that churns inside you that is very hard to quantify or explain or even articulate. 
uh, when you feel that urge to go create something of your own. And so that's how I ended up starting SSI. And ever since after that, I've only been in the world of startups. It's very hard for me to imagine working in a big company today, which frankly is a completely different life. You know, you need different skills. Uh, you need a different way of working, a different way of thinking about what your goals in life are if you work at a large company. Interesting, because, um, uh, you know, uh, things have really changed, as you mentioned, and uh, especially in, in India and a lot of uh, developing countries, uh, there, there's a lot of boom uh, in startups and there's a lot of good talent which is available. But uh, for, for somebody who's uh, a graduate or is looking to, uh, graduate from a B school, would you recommend them to work in a startup or would you uh, ask them to work in a big company to learn about processes? It depends on what your goals are. You know, there's no right or wrong. Um, startup journeys are very difficult journeys, yeah. but uh, they can also be incredibly rich and rewarding, not just in terms of money. Yes, occasionally you can also get very, very rich if you uh, to a good startup and you are successful. But they're also very rich and rewarding in the sense that you get a diverse set of experiences, the kind of experiences that you would never get uh, if you were in a large company. But you never get the kind of support that you get in a large company. Uh, you would not get that in a startup. So there's no right or wrong. It's really a question of what your dream is, what your goal is. You know, if you want to be a senior VP at Google, or if you want to go work for Oracle and become, you know, the, the a division manager, that's a perfectly good job. It's a perfectly good career. And lots of people follow that. In fact, the majority of people follow it. I would end by saying that for most people, startups is actually not the right answer. So I will caution people that they are difficult enough and they are risky enough that it's not necessarily the right answer. I know for the last 10 years, we've had a great market in startups. And obviously, it feels like you, know, you can't go wrong joining a startup. But that will not always be true. The business cycle will kick in. At some point, it will come to an end. I was here in Silicon Valley in the year 2000 when the dot-com bubble crashed. And uh, it was a wasteland. I mean, it was very clear that this is not where people want it to be. Uh, you know, with all due respect to the in investment bankers and the consultants, you know, they all went back to New York and Chicago and they left. And all these people who I call tourist entrepreneurs who had shown up in Silicon Valley were gone. And only the true believers were left. You know, the people who genuinely wanted to work with technology, who were technologists and wanted to do the things that make Silicon Valley special and a startup journey special. Right. And, uh, you know, you uh, spent a decade in uh, foundation capital uh, and then uh, you, you started your uh, your own fund. What was, what was the process when you look into, you know, start your own uh, fund and, uh, you know, how did you manage to uh, get their limited partners for your fund? Yeah, so I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, I had a wonderful journey at Foundation Capital. That's where I learned the art of venture capital from uh, luminaries like Catherine Gould and Jim Anderson and Bill Elmore, the three founders of Foundation Capital, Mike Shu, who was one of my mentors and a senior partner at Foundation. Um, but it was also clear to me that um, I still had that entrepreneurial urge, that entrepreneurial fire to do what I truly enjoy, which is the deep tech software companies, the hardcore software companies. And so when I left to start engineering capital, um, I went to Catherine for advice and uh, she was instrumental in both introducing me to LPs and also helping me think about 
engineering capital as a venture firm and why the world needed a new venture firm. You know, there are many good VCs in Silicon Valley, VCs and GPs who made a lot of money, but there are very few VCs who have started their own venture firm. Uh, and Catherine was a woman who had started her own venture firm, Foundation Capital. And so uh, it was magical to be able to talk to her and have her as a thought partner. And so that's really how Engineering Capital got started. And, and, you know, I wanted to understand what was the thesis? Uh, why, why do you uh, choose to focus on technical insights uh, uh, and, you know, focus on, uh, uh, you know, software uh, engineers for, uh, for your thesis? Yes. Uh, so as I mentioned, I have a passion for engineering. I am a nerd and a geek at heart and I love software. And so in that sense, it was a natural choice for me as an individual to play to my strengths. But more importantly, uh, it was also clear there was a market opportunity over here. If I can phrase it in the terms that Peter Thiel likes to use, which is um, what is a generally accepted belief where you have a contrarian opinion, where you believe something else to be true from what is generally accepted that you know. Uh, for me, that belief, and by the way, I still continue to believe it, is that Silicon Valley, most companies in Silicon Valley are not technology companies. Most entrepreneurs are not technologists, and most startups are not started on technical insights anymore, even though that is the popular perception. You know, if you walk up to an average person in the world, you know, the 7.9 billion people uh, outside the few, you know, entrepreneurs, and you ask them, what is Silicon Valley about? They will tell you it's about technology. They'll think this is where this is the heart of where the most deep tech stuff is. But it became obvious to me that most venture capital firms are not specializing in technology. Their general partners are not technologists. The entrepreneurs are not, are not geeks at heart. They are not nerds. They don't want to play with technology for technology's sake. And so there was this opportunity where I wanted to create a new venture capital firm. And that's what engineering capital specializes in. Ironically, in the heart of Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, what are some of the, you know, hard problems uh, and, you know, opportunities which are there to, to start, you know, new technology companies, especially in Silicon Valley? There is a vast array of um, hard problems that are in plain sight. I call these problems hiding in plain sight that people ignore because they just assume the world works this way. And that's how it has to be. But if you look at it with a clean sheet of paper, with a fresh mind, it becomes obvious that maybe there is some small subset which could be solved with technology. And within those companies, just to clarify for your listeners, I only focus on software companies. So I don't do hardware. There's an entire opportunity to do hardware companies. For example, today we are seeing companies trying to go into space, trying to do robotics, et cetera, obviously hardware companies. Within the realm of software, uh, thanks to you know, famous people like Alan Turing, uh, obviously lived not far from where you are right now in London, uh, who, who is, you know, the father of computer science for those of people who are not familiar. You know, computer science provides for an endless opportunity of creativity. There's no limit uh, other than the halting problem that Alan Turing famously proved. There's really no limit to the type of program you can solve and the kinds of things that you can do. And so, um, the question is, what is a problem that you want to solve that you can use technology for? And here are some simple examples. Okay, uh, Today, when we build software and the way the internet has evolved, we are almost always making a trade-off between security and efficiency. In other words, do we make a computer, a system, a way of working and developing software that is secure 
where we can be confident that our information is restricted to us, or is it efficient? Is it useful? Are other people able to access it? This trade-off is not a mathematical certainty. Uh, it is simply the fact that we have not yet figured out a better way to do it. And so you see a whole ton of startups over here. This is obviously the area of cybersecurity, uh, where I continue to see a lot of innovation, a lot of new opportunities. Uh, even my companies, for example, I was the first investor in companies like Menlo Security, Robust Intelligence, Kentic. These are all my these are all my portfolio companies who have really innovated on the frontiers of computer science to advance the state of art. But you know, the eventual nirvana is still far away. In fact, it's not in sight. And so I would say that's one area of opportunity. The second, of course, is this entire movement to the cloud. Um, for the first time in the history of computer science, the entire technology stack is being innovated on simultaneously. This has never happened before. So if you look at the long arc of computer science over the last 40, 50, 60 years, you know, first it was all about getting the chips to work. Then it was about how do we make systems work? Then we obviously ended up with the PC. Then we ended up with the internet. And there were eras. You, know, you can talk about the internet era and the PC era and the mini computer era. Well, right now, what's happening is the entire stack is being innovated at, at the same time. In each of those previous eras, there was only one part of the stack that people were working on. When it was the mini computer era, um, data general, soul of a new machine, the eclipse, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning storybook. Um, it was all about building a system. And what does it take to get a system to run? Um, that is no longer true today. Today, you are seeing this innovation where people are building new chips, where people are testing assumptions like perhaps the von Neumann architecture is not the right way to put together your system uh, of computers. There are other people who are saying, let me work at the other end of the spectrum. How can I hook a user engagement, get someone interested in something? What can I tweak to make it more efficient for a human being? At the very other end of the spectrum, and then everything in between is being innovated on. And so it's really the golden age for startups in that sense. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. And absolutely, I agree. It's been a golden age, especially uh, not, not only in Silicon Valley, but you know across uh, ecosystems. And uh, you know, what, what are some of the lessons for you when it comes to uh, uh, the speed of which you know you understand uh, which are the breakout companies uh, coming out of out of the ecosystem? Uh, 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 how do you identify you know which are the companies which are going to be breakout companies in future? Uh, this is the heart of the job of a venture capitalist, which is to identify before others what is going to be special and important to tomorrow. And like any other endeavor, any other human endeavor, it takes a combination of things. You can't point to a single element and say that is the reason why everything happened. That's not true. It's always a combination. It's a package deal. And what I look for is a great entrepreneur. There's no substitute for leadership. There would be no Apple without Steve Jobs. There would be no Facebook without Mark Zuckerberg. It's very hard to imagine these companies or a Microsoft without Bill Gates. And so there has to be the leader, the founder, the person who will change the future as we know it, simply because they are special people. Second, the market has to be large. 
uh, if, if you're not working in a large market, you are by definition going to be small. A company can be only as large as its market. Third, there's an element of luck. You cannot remove the element of luck. It's a highly complex system. The world is chaotic. And anyone who believes that they have not been lucky and they've been very successful, I think has uh, too much ego and they're ascribing too much to themselves. There is always an element of luck that comes in. Number four, there is, in my case, not necessarily true in everyone's case, I'm looking for a technical insight. Do they have some special technical insight? In other words, do they know how to solve a problem that other people don't yet know how to solve that they have figured out, which will become the secret sauce for that company, that proprietary insight? And to help your uh, listeners understand, you know, a great example is to compare Google with Facebook. Google was started with a technical insight. The founders, Larry and Sergey, who were, you know, coincidentally with me when I was at Stanford, they were students there. Um, they were trying to solve the problem of building this infinite index, right? It is a library sciences problem. It's a well-known problem in computer science. And of course, they came up with this wonderful algorithm, which we now call PageRank, which allowed Google to build this wonderful index. And they first went to market with an enterprise model. They were selling their product, their technology to Yahoo, you know, which at that time was the dominant search engine. Facebook, on the other hand, was started with a consumer insight. Mark Zuckerberg knew well before any one of us how much we want to connect with each other. He wanted to build a platform for us to connect and that we were willing to give up our privacy in exchange for this connection. And that was a consumer insight. That's an insight into how people behave, what human beings want. And of course, he mastered that to build a wonderful business and a huge company, and both have been very successful. So you can build companies with a, with a technical insight like Google. You can build them with a consumer insight like Facebook. You can build them with a market insight. You can have different types of insights. In my case, I focus on technical insights. And I want to hasten to add that I'm not implying that Facebook doesn't have good technology. Facebook has some amazing technology, but the core starting insight of the company was a consumer insight. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Ashwin, when it comes to early stage uh, startups, um, how much is, you know, CAC relatively relevant uh, when, it, when it comes for investment thesis? Uh, do, do, do you look at uh, CAC relatively at, at a very early stage or is it still relevant now? Rohit, you're cutting out for a few seconds. I can't understand the word you're looking for. Are you saying CAC to LTV? Uh, that's right. Okay. So CAC to LTV, in other words, you know, the, the customer acquisition cost to the long to the lifetime value of a customer is one of the defining characteristics of a business model of a company. And it's a very important thing that you look at. Uh, this is uh, arguably one of the most important metrics to understand when you try to scale a business. If you try to see what is the, what are the alternatives that would be available to you in terms of what go-to-markets can you practice depending on what your CAC to LTV ratio is. Um, when I invest in companies, I am a pre-seed seed investor. There is no CAC to LTV. By definition, we don't know that. So we are still projecting or we are imagining what the possible CAC to LTVs would be. What I tell my CEOs is that the lower you can make your CAC to LTV ratio, the, the more freedom you have in terms of the go-to-markets that are available to you. So obviously, if you have an extremely low ratio, then you have lots of choices in how you take it to market. You can afford to spend a lot of money on marketing, a lot of money on your go-to-market motion if you have a very, very low ratio. If the ratio is very high, 
Well, then you have very low margins. You have a limited freedom of scale over there. And so you have fewer choices, but you can build great companies in either case, um, you know, with thanks to technology itself. And the fact that we use technology to go to market now, um, there are many alternatives available to you. There are companies like Atlassian that built a very different motion from companies like VMware, where I used to work, where we built a completely different motion from the classic enterprise model, which still continues to be popular and will always continue to be popular. Um, you know, so there's no limit to what you can do. Uh, it's an important metric, but by far not the only metric. What it does do is define the freedom of movement that a CEO has in building their go-to-market motion. All right. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, software companies, well, what are the metrics uh, which a founder should present, especially in early, uh, 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 sorry, pre-seed and, you know, seed stage to the, to the investors? Yeah, so there aren't a lot of metrics typically at a pre-seed stage uh, in a company. I mean, by definition, they haven't built the product yet, so there are yeah. no customers. Maybe the technology is not even working. But having some view to what the go-to-market motion for the company will be is important. Mm -hmm. And at a minimum, what the market for the company is, is very important. So I encourage entrepreneurs, even at the pre-seed stage, to think about their market size. And I encourage them to think about the market size from a bottoms-up perspective. In other words, how many customers will you have? And what is the total value of that customer, the LTV of that customer? Just that simple metric of how many customers exist and what the value of the customer is starts giving you some feel for how big the market is. And therefore, you know, is this even a venture-backed, a viable venture-backed company? Most companies are not viable for venture backing. The vast majority of companies in the world never have raised venture capital and never will raise venture capital. So venture is only a small subset of a subset of the market. And um, so people really need to understand what we are looking for as VCs, or if an entrepreneur wants to raise venture and, and is trying to build a venture style startup, they need to understand why they are in that very exceptional corner of the market. Um, where you know you would take a small amount of capital and get disproportionate returns. Correct, and uh, you know what, what? What do you think about uh, the competition between you know specialist uh, seed firms versus multi-stage uh, large firms, especially with uh, um, you know Sequoia and uh, you know, Tiger Global and uh, SoftBank also uh, also being involved into pre-seed and you know seed stage at, uh, at times. I think one of the most dramatic changes that has happened to venture capital in the last 10 years is that the entire industry has moved from a monolithic single firm is your entire partner for the entire life cycle of your company to what we have now, where you have specialist firms at all different stages of the business. Now, this has occurred for a variety of macro reasons. I mean, the market has become much bigger. The eventual market cap has become much bigger. We've become much more efficient in how, how many companies we can grow with our model, et cetera. But what has happened to the industry, the venture capital industry, is that it used to be that you would have a single company who would lead your Series A investment, and they would be your largest owner till the date of the exit, IPO or MA. That is no longer true. And one of the most dramatic examples of that was when SoftBank invested in Uber. What people didn't notice is that at the same time, on the same day, in the same company, you had Benchmark, one of the world's best venture capital firms, selling stock 
Sequoia Capital, another one of the world's best venture capital firms, buying stock at a different price in the same company. This would have been inconceivable in the old life cycle model of venture capital. Now, we have specialists at all stages. Even what you think of as generalist firms are not truly, truly generalist. They have their niche. They have their specialties. Some of them are multi-stage, for sure. Um, firms like Sequoia Capital have multiple stages they will invest in. Firms like Benchmark are still practicing through a single fund. Uh, but it is clear that the entire venture industry is now going to consist of some form of specialization. The only question is, how much do you specialize? Even within the large firms, people talk about the growth fund, the early stage fund, the partners who are working on the growth fund are different from the partners who are working on the early stage fund. And so in effect, even though they may be under a single umbrella, they are different firms at that point. They're certainly different funds that are making different investment decisions in your company. Got it. And um, uh, you know, you choose to be a, a solo GP uh, versus, uh, you know, building another partnership. Uh, is the, how the investment uh, decision-making framework different uh, for, a, for, a, uh, for a VC who is a solo GP uh, in this one? So as you recognize, I am a solo GP, which means I work alone. And by definition, I am the single decision-maker on all investments. Okay. So uh, I'm the only GP. When a company comes in, it's up to me to meet them and also complete all the diligence, do the work to get to that final decision of whether we're going to invest or not. And I make all of those alone. That doesn't mean that I don't talk to other people or I don't get advice from other people or I don't do diligence or make reference calls, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the final call is mine. Many firms operate on the partnership model where a single individual cannot make a decision. Now, there's often a continuum over there where there are firms where they literally vote and everybody has to sit together or firms where there are kind of loose cannons. You know, people talk in terms of check writers, you know, people who have a fair degree of freedom. But still, at the end of the day, legally, practically, um, they are sitting together usually on a Monday morning in a room and talking about the companies and saying, are they going to do it or not? That's why they're a partnership. So one is a team oriented approach. And mine is obviously a very single oriented approach. This is a new approach. Um, solo GPs have only existed for the last decade or so. And um, it is by far the minority model. In other words, there's only a few, you know, I would say 99% of the firms are not solo GP firms out there. But there are many advantages to being a solo GP. And I do believe we will see a large increase in the number of solo GP firms going forward. Though I also believe it will never become the dominant model. For various reasons, I believe the partnership model will always be the majority. And, and uh, uh, this is for, for the younger uh, VCs who are listening to this podcast. You, you know, VC is cannot be uh, is not uh, an easy career option. But what is the difference between those who go to succeed versus uh, those who do not? Uh, you know, what are the early parameters you see in, in those VCs who go to succeed? Yes, what a great question, Rohit. Because venture is an incredibly competitive business. And sometimes entrepreneurs don't realize how high the failure rate is in venture itself, you know, of individual partners and also of firms. Famous firms come and famous firms go away and people don't realize that there is a mortality rate to what happens over here. Um, what, what makes a VC successful? I think it's the same elements that make an entrepreneur successful. You've got to be intelligent. You've got to be hardworking. Education certainly helps. Experience helps. Um, and you have to understand that it is a job where you are competing in a highly competitive market where different people have different strengths. 
And so you have to understand your strengths. You have to leverage your strengths and use that to, to obviously pick good investments, help your companies, and hopefully get good exits. And then lastly, there's always that element of luck, you know, that small element, which is an essential ingredient um, that we all depend on to succeed in the end. And, and do you have, uh, uh, you know, advice for uh, a VC in his early years of, the, of their VC career? Oh, uh, this, you, I can talk about that forever because, you know, this is such a rich uh, business. It's such a rich job. I mean, you have, there's so much to think about it. Right. Um, if any of your listeners are interested, I'll post uh, uh, a reading list I have called How to Think Like a VC, which is just a set of readings that I've shared with people in the past. And so I would say thinking like a VC is a very different way of thinking than thinking like an entrepreneur. Um, so some of the things that make a VC very, very interesting, for example, are being contrarian, uh, being driven from first principles. Hard work is an incredible element and often underestimated how hard the hard work is that a good VC has to put in to build a successful portfolio. Um, it's a very long-term business, so you have to have an orientation towards the long-term. And long-term is an ambiguous word that people often get confused about. Long-term in the venture business is three to seven years. Okay, If you have a company that is going to become successful in 20 years, that's usually too late for a VC. And it's almost impossible to see a company becoming successful in one or two years that would be a venture scale, a venture style business. So that sweet spot in the middle, the three, four, five years, the seven, eight, nine years for your success is really what I mean by long-term. And understanding that orientation is something that new people sometimes take some time to get used to. So if someone is starting out in venture, what I would tell them is think about a decision whose results you will know in, let's say, five years from now. Can you give me an example of a decision that you made? Okay. And then have them use that as a practice to then say, now let's talk about an investment decision. So for example, perhaps you had admission to two different universities and you picked one versus the other. Okay. That's a four-year decision typically. That's an example of a longer term decision, which will stay with you for the rest of your life. So it has an impact forever after that. So that's a way in which you can train yourself to think at what is this sweet spot for venture capital, which is the four, five, six, seven year window that we are looking at for success. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash Social pilot to get a 14 day free trial. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the Indian ecosystem. Uh, we're finally uh, getting to see some, uh, you know, uh, exits, especially uh, Zomato coming up with an IPO. Uh, but there's been a lot of talks about uh, the rise of SPACs. Uh, and uh, do you think, um, uh, what is your thoughts on, on SPACs? And do you think uh, the future will hold out? for SPACs in emerging markets, especially Indian Southeast Asian uh, economies as well? Yes. Yeah, so SPACs, um, for those people who are not familiar, uh, stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation. You know, it's a way for someone to raise money to then go out and buy a company to merge into that and take that as a, as a public, uh, take that as a public entity. And it is really an innovation by Wall Street. 
Um, and really speaking, it's not an innovation because SPACs in their old form have existed for a long period of time. And for a while, they were somewhat tainted in that they had this view that you know it was lower quality companies or lower quality capital that pursued it. That has changed more recently for reasons that I don't fully understand. Uh, I'm not a public market investor. I don't spend time you know, really trying to understand that. So clearly, they're very popular today. Uh, I'm going to guess that this is more for regulatory or perhaps macro reasons like too much liquidity in the market than for any fundamental intrinsic reason. As an early stage venture capitalist, I focus on long-term value creation. It's that five-year cycle. It's that seven-year cycle. How can you go from zero to 100 million in revenues? Once you've built that, then you will have many ways to exit. And yes, SPACs are one viable way to exit today. Um, certainly, some of my companies have been approached by SPACs. And so I encourage them to study it, to look at it. And if it makes sense, then you know leverage it as a vehicle at that point. I haven't had any of my current portfolio go through a SPAC. Um, but you could also go IPO, which is obviously yeah. the most prestigious way to go public. Um, or you can sell to another company because now we are seeing very, very high-priced acquisitions, you know, multi-multi-billion dollar acquisitions, tens of billion dollar acquisitions. So all are viable exits for someone like me who is investing in a company when it's literally two people and an idea who are saying, we're going to start a new company. In several cases in my portfolio, the companies were incorporated after I, you know, we came to an agreement, we shook hands and said, let's go start a company. All right. And, uh, you know, uh, COVID had been an uh, inflection uh, point because a uh, lot of entrepreneurs and investors have moved away from big cities. Uh, they're moving to cities like Miami and, you know, other, other uh, you know, places. Uh, uh, do, do you think, uh, you know, if somebody wants to start a company, uh, you know, should they be in the biggest of cities where the network effects are there? Or, or do you think, you know, going forward, I think today, especially due to work from home and the impact of COVID, et cetera, it's possible to build a company almost anywhere, a true technology company, a Silicon Valley style startup almost anywhere. However, you get many unfair advantages by working in Silicon Valley. I'm obviously based here, and so perhaps I'm biased. But the ecosystem that exists in Silicon Valley is unsurpassed. The number of people who are available to you over here, yes, the costs are high. Yes, traffic is bad in Silicon Valley. And yes, some of the politics in California are dysfunctional. There's no question about that. Those are facts. But it is also true that the pool of talent that exists in Silicon Valley is vast and deep and doesn't exist anywhere else. The kind of experience that you can get over here is absolutely unbelievable. Just recently, one of my portfolio companies, the CEO called me and asked me a question which related to a particular way in which Oracle had made a certain decision. I called a friend of mine who used to work at Oracle at that time who had made that decision. And I said, why don't you talk to him? And he said, oh, wow, that type of connection, that type of communication happens in Silicon Valley all the time, and we take it for granted. On the other side, partnerships. So sitting here in Silicon Valley, you can partner with Google, with Apple, with Facebook, with Arista, with Cisco, et cetera, et cetera. These are all companies sitting right over here. You can go to market with them. Eventually, you could get acquired by any one of them. 
they're all sitting right over here. And so Silicon Valley does have a unique ecosystem. Um, there are other benefits over here, things like non-competes, et cetera, uh, the concentration of capital, et cetera. Some of those I think will migrate, some of them other people will copy. And I do believe we will see more startup hubs emerge, but Silicon Valley will continue to be the dominant hub for the next five to 10 years. There's no question about that, but nothing stays forever. You know, I don't think you can sit, you can claim that, you know, 20 years from now, necessarily Silicon Valley will be number one. No, Boston used to be the number one center of venture capital. Venture capital was invented in Boston. The very first venture capital firm in the world, you know, ARD, was started in Boston. The first big success in venture capital, you know, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, was founded in Boston. So these things can, you know, people can make mistakes, uh, regions, politicians, et cetera, can make mistakes, and these changes can happen. But today, if you want to start a company, there's no better place to start it than Silicon Valley. Very interesting. And, um, you know, lastly, I want to uh, know what was the experience, you know, climbing Mount Everest and, you know, what made you uh, go there and, uh, you know, how's the total experience all about? So, you know, I mentioned that I'm a nerd and a geek who loves computer science and uh, had, you know, worked my entire life with computers. Um, I sold my company SSI. And for the first time, I was a young single guy who had a little bit of money, didn't have to work and uh, felt like he really wanted to test himself, you know, throw himself into a whole different domain when I heard about this expedition that was uh, training to go to Everest. And they had a spot. And so I threw myself into that. And for the first time in my life, I started physically training. I hope your uh, listeners will not laugh, but I had never been to a gym uh, till I started training for that because I'd always worked on computers and it was always about books and, and, and never played a sport. So it was an intense physical experience. You know, I trained for about nine months and I did not summit. I was not on a summit expedition. So it was not uh, an extreme version of risk that I was taking, but it was a life-changing experience. You know, in India, in Indian mythology, you know, we talk about the truth in the mountains and going and meditating and thinking. And there is certainly a truth that exists in the mountains that doesn't exist anywhere else. And I can tell you that I came back a different man. I came back a different person from the person who went there. I knew myself much better. I knew what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. And so in that sense, it changed my life, you know, that expedition. Uh, now I'm married, I have children. And so it's a lot riskier uh, to plan a trip, but uh, maybe one day I'll go back. I still hold out that hope. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? There are so many business books that I decided to suggest a book, which is not actually a business book, but I believe encapsulates the entrepreneurial journey in a uniquely American way. And it's just a fabulous read is a book called Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. It is the story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, these are two men who started out with a total of 32 people to find the path overland from the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast. And they literally walked across after the Louisiana Purchase from St. Louis, which was the easternmost part of that was known to the United States. Um, uh, the America, America had just completed the Louisiana Purchase and had owned this vast amount of territory. And nobody, no white person had ever walked across, knew what existed. And these two men with their small band of compatriots, including one woman, yes, who was pregnant and who gave birth on the way, walked across the continent of the United States, literally into the unknown. And uh, Undaunted Courage is the story of that expedition. 
And in so many ways, it encapsulates the lessons that an entrepreneur has to take. The original budget for this expedition was only $2,000. They had to carry everything on, on their backs that they were going to carry with them. There were no animals that were involved. They had to be incredibly frugal. And it was into the unknown. They didn't know what lay ahead. Is it a mountain? Is it a desert? Is it an ocean? They had no idea what lay ahead on the other side. Of course, they were successful. They came back. And I think uh, Stephen Ambrose's book and the decisions that went into what made them successful, how they packed their gunpowder, where they stored the paper, how Lewis himself selected the men that he wanted to come on the journey. Why was there a woman on that trip with them? Those are interesting questions that I think every entrepreneur should think about if they're going to start a new company. Interesting, you know, I've never heard about Undaunted Courage, but you know, after listening to uh, listening about the book, I think I'm going to read the book, and we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, you know, if Ashmi, uh, if you could go back in time when you started your venture capital journey, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Something that I would, I wish I had done differently. Uh, yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, as an intellectually curious engineer, type A type who had had success early in his career. When I started in venture, I wanted to do everything. I wanted to take every meeting, meet every person, understand every company. And I wish I had been more diligent and had ruthlessly prioritized my time better. So uh, the near-term decision that every VC makes is what are you going to do today? What are, which next meeting are you going to take? That is a decision you are making every day as a VC. And I wish I had been uh, more ruthless in the allocation of my time, stayed more focused. Um, as time has gone along, I continue to do that now more and more. And so if you're a young VC, what I would tell you is ask yourself this question. Do you have to do this meeting? What is a more efficient way of doing this meeting? And what is an alternative to doing this meeting? And what is the most important meeting that you are not doing because you are doing this meeting? and therefore figure out where you want to take yourself. And having a clear vision of what type of a VC you want to be and where you want to get us to succeed will help you make those decisions early on. It took me a while to figure that out. I think, I think that's, a, that's a great insight. And uh, last video, your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, so. Yeah, I've probably got a contrarian uh, suggestion here also. My favorite online tool is Office 365. It is an incredibly versatile old style tool, which obviously started with Office, which obviously I used and everybody has used. So I grew up with it. So for me, it's an easy decision. But I think Microsoft has truly done a marvelous job of making it truly online. They have seamlessly carried people online. And you are able to, if you think of it in the modern way in which I use it, where everything is online, you leverage all the connections, you can go in, you can automate. I use Power Automate. I use all of those tools. It is incredibly versatile and it is all comprehensive. You are buying into the Microsoft monopoly if you do that, but uh, it is an excellent tool. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Ashmeet, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about engineering capital? Good ways to reach out to me are my website, www.engineeringcapital.com or on Twitter. I'm Ashmeet Sedana. That's my handle. Easy to find over there. And both are good ways to reach me. Right, we'll put that in the show notes. Ashmeet, thank you so much for taking on time speaking to us. Uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you, Rohit. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast. 
where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.